Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Dr. Will Cole, leading functional medicine expert and best-selling author. This podcast is the manifesto for a new breed of health seekers. This is the art of being well. What's up, everyone? It's Dr. Will Cole, and welcome to The Art of Being Well. I am a leading functional medicine practitioner. I get to consult people around the world via webcam. I started one of the first functional medicine telehealth centers in the world over a decade ago, and I'm a New York Times bestselling author of a few books. I wrote Intuitive Fasting, which is my newest book, and I also wrote Ketotarian and The Inflammation Spectrum. If you want to learn more about my clinical work, the telehealth center, or the books, and there's loads of free content there as well, check it all out at drwillcole.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-C-O-L-E.com. Let's get to today's guest. His name is Johnny Bowden. Johnny Bowden is a board-certified nutrition specialist and nationally known expert on weight loss and nutrition. He has been featured in or contributed material to many publications, including the New York Times, the New York Post, Marie Claire, the Ladies Home Journal, and has appeared on Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, and CBS as an expert on nutrition, weight loss, and fitness. Dr. Bowden writes the monthly Healthy Solutions column for Better Nutrition Magazine, is a regular contributor to America Online, and serves as contributing editor for both Clean Eating and Total Health magazines. He has a master's degree in psychology and counseling and a PhD in nutrition, and has earned six national certifications in personal training and exercise. And he's also an adjunct faculty member at Clayton College for Natural Health, Dr. Bowden is the author or co-author of many books on health and nutrition, one of which is Living Low Carb, which I actually wrote the introduction to. And he's just the author of so many amazing books. He's been a true hero of mine. And we get into all of that and so much more in today's conversation. We talk about how Johnny pioneered the great cholesterol myth to reveal the true culprits of heart disease. We talk about what exactly is insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome and why this is the key to so many 
underlying diseases and, and dealing with metabolic syndrome and dealing with insulin resistance really is the root cause for a lot of different inflammatory problems, including many cancers, heart disease, diabetes, and many more. We talk about the relationship between insulin resistance and the pandemic. You definitely want to hear that. And we also talk about how it's more than just HDL versus LDL and total cholesterol when it comes to cardiovascular health and understanding cholesterol metabolism. We talk about the exact labs that you want to have run that can help us predict heart disease and which ones may be outdated that you may want to consider maybe not running. We talk about the lifestyle habits to shift our health in the right direction in regards to heart disease risk. We talk about Johnny's dietary habits to optimize his own health, the role genetics play in our health and heart disease. We talk about how important sleep is and why it's so vitally essential for our health and what, what poor sleep can do to our health and how to strengthen our immune system effectively. And don't forget, at the end of my conversation with Johnny, there's going to be an Ask Me Anything where I answer your burning health questions. All right, let's get to today's conversation with my friend, Dr. Johnny Bowden. Johnny, my friend, thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. It's just such a delight. I was looking forward to this. I, likewise, likewise. So you have been somebody that I've looked up to in this space for a long time. Oh, no. And gonna... <laughs> it's Whenever true. they say that, it's like, you're one of the, I grew up listening to you. And no, I think, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But I mean, I your voice has been a voice that has resonated with me and I've learned a lot from over the years. So I'm really excited for people on this show to that listen to the show to learn from you, which you're such a great teacher on this. Thank you so um, much. But I want to talk about this book actually is how I heard about you first was when this first came out, The Great Cholesterol Myth. 10 years ago. Yeah. So 10 yeah. years ago. Tell me about, tell, I mean, that as a revolutionizing book, really a game changer in the conversation around it. But how did the book come to be? The book came to be because, well, you're an author, you know this well. I had a hit book called The 150 Healthiest Foods on Earth. And publishers love sequels. Like <laughs> if they have a movie, Die Hard, they want six, they want Die Hard six. And, you know, so we did, they, they kept coming up with ideas for other 150 series, 150 most effective ways to live longer, 150 best ways to boost your energy. I had a whole little cottage industry of 150 stuff. Mm -hmm. And the publisher came to me. Now, I had been a cholesterol skeptic ever since my first training with Robert Crayon. I, I, I was lucky enough to have a lot of teachers and professors who questioned the wisdom on saturated fat. So I was a little bit skeptical to begin with. And I can tell you how I had my epiphany moment with that. But I was definitely not on the side of like, let's lower everybody's cholesterol. That'll prevent heart disease. So the publisher comes to me and they say, we have the best idea for the next book in the series, 150 foods that can best lower your cholesterol. And I said, well, that's an interesting idea, but I'm really not the guy to write it because I don't think that should be the target. And I don't want to contribute to the notion that that is the target. Mm -hmm. And they literally said, are you nuts? What are you talking about? The entire medical world believes this. And, and you're saying what? That it's, I said, I don't think it's that important. I think mm -hmm. we've been misled. And if you want me to write a book, I'd like to write a book about why cholesterol yeah. shouldn't be the target. And they, oh, it's absolutely out of the question. We can't do that. And we did go back and forth for a while. And finally, they said, OK, we'll let you write the book you want to write. But there's a couple of conditions. One, mm -hmm. you need to have an MD writing with you 
we need cover on this. And not just an MD, a cardiologist, and not just a cardiologist, but one that is like known, a well-known cardiologist who's going to, so I said, well, that's not a problem. I call up Steve Sinatra, who I've known for 20 years. And I said, listen, you want to write this book on, on why cholesterol is, I didn't say why it's bullshit. We don't think it's bullshit. We think it's being, and I'll get into that. We think it's being measured in a way that's completely obsolete. And we think it's being given an importance that is out of proportion to what it really does and how it does it. So I think nobody's really understanding Mm-hmm. what cholesterol is and how to measure it properly, how to get good information for that. So mm-hmm. that's what we think. We don't think it's bullshit, but we think the way it's being practiced in America's bullshit. So we wrote this book and, and that's basically how it came to be written. It was, it was meant to be a book about how to lower cholesterol, but my <laughs> publisher to their, to their credit, you know, was willing to look at the, the data and, and certainly talk to Dr. Sinatra and that's how it, it got to be written. Now, 10 years later. Yeah. There's a lot of research that has backed up what we said. Yeah, a lot has happened in 10 I years. I mean, we could start with, I can, I can rattle off three or four of them. I know people who, who memorize research are better at me, but 2010 was that huge study out of Oakland hospitals, Patty Suri, Toronto, and Ron Krauss, 347,000 patients in a meta-analysis, saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease. Uh, 2014, the Annals of Internal Medicine, another article, saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease. Uh, Zoe Harcum wrote her PhD thesis and published it in the British Medical Journal saying the science never supported these regulations or these recommendations on fat and cholesterol. So mm-hmm. we've, now there's a lot of research that kind of mm-hmm. says these guys are not so crazy. Yeah. And more importantly, I think that when we wrote that book, we were damn sure that the way we were measuring cholesterol was wrong and that that was not what we should be looking at. Mm-hmm. But we weren't 100% sure what we should be looking at. Yeah. 10 years later, we are. And that's it. why this is so important because we found, and let me be very clear, I don't do original research. I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I haven't run college sophomores or rats in a lab with a lab coat and like compiled original research. I'm just a translator and a, a basically someone who can explain this stuff to mm-hmm. people with an eighth grade reading education, which I think is a noble thing. And that's not a talk down. My family, I, should be, I, I am good at explaining this at the dinner table to my family who has no particular expertise in cardiovascular disease, cholesterol or anything. Yeah. And what we did is we didn't, dis, we didn't do this research, but we uncovered research going back to the 1970s that lays a clear path out of the etiology of heart disease. And it's been hiding in plain sight since 1970. And a few people like Ivor Cummings and Jeffrey Gerber have found this stuff and said, guys, look at this. And so we looked at it. That's awesome. And all we did was connect the dots and take it hopefully to a larger audience. But we mm-hmm. stood on the, on, the, on the shoulders of giants. We didn't make this stuff up. So what we, know, what we found was that research going back into the 70s, a doctor named Kraft, who uh, what he did was he developed the very first test for insulin resistance. And it was a very brilliant assay. And it was very difficult to do. And I can, we can explain what insulin resistance is. I'm sure your audience yeah. has heard it 100,000 times, but I can explain it my way if you want, if you want to go. I, I would love to, yeah. It's something called insulin resistance, folks. That's yeah. what we know. And he measured it. And it, it required a patient to be hooked up to two intravenous things, one for glucose, one mm-hmm. for insulin. So you could literally watch what does this person's body do when this much glucose is entered into the system? How does insulin respond? 
Are their cells sensitive to it? Do they just take it and move the sugar out of the bloodstream or do mm -hmm. they resist it? And he was able to, he, he tested this on, I think it was 14,000 people over the course of his, his lifetime. And he put them into five different groups, 20% groups from very insulin sensitive, like man, their bodies knew what to do with sugar. They responded with the right amount of insulin. Insulin cleared the sugar out of the system. They were the, the relatively few who were what we call insulin sensitive. And it mm -hmm. got worse from there down to the most insulin resistant people. Like you'd have a piece of broccoli, your sugar would go up and the insulin couldn't get rid of it. So that's a really insulin resistant person. Then he followed these people for 10 years. He wanted to see what happened to him. So it was very apparent almost from the beginning that insulin resistance was a causal factor in diabetes, something that has been documented a million times. Nobody's going to even argue with that anymore, that mm -hmm. insulin resistance is part of diabetes. But he was curious about if people got sick from other stuff. So he looked at these figures and he followed them up for 10 years. And in the insulin sensitive group, nobody died. Mm. It was kind of unheard of. Nobody died. There was no heart attacks. There were no... Now you move into the slightly more insulin, the next group, you start to see some deaths and sicknesses. You go all the way up to the, the scale is up there in the most insulin resistant group. Now, that was the first study like that. But then in the 80s, this guy from Stanford named Gerald Reven comes along and discovered something that we all heard of as syndrome X. It's now called metabolic syndrome. syndrome. It's also called prediabetes. And mm -hmm. it is now actually more correctly called insulin resistance syndrome. Mm -hmm. And Raven discovers this and he knows, it, it, the data is so clear that this is at the heart of diabetes. It's like, and a after he had done a number of studies demonstrating that, he thought to himself, much like uh, what's his name did in the 70s, I wonder if this stuff's related to anything else. Let's do a test. Let's see how insulin resistant people fare in the area of cancer, in the area of lung disease, in the area mm -hmm. of every single one of them was tied to insulin resistance. And I had told you, you had asked me earlier, do I want to make sure that anything, that we cover anything? Mm -hmm. And this is the perfect time to bring it up. If you look at every single pre-existing condition, every comorbidity for COVID, every one of them, high blood pressure, diabetes, pre-diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, heart disease, Alzheimer's, which we're now calling type three diabetes because it has the same etiology, mm -hmm. and even lung, kidney, and liver disease. Every single COVID comorbidity has insulin resistant at the core. Mm -hmm. that's how important this is. And insulin resistance can be treated, reversed, or prevented with diet alone, no statin drugs required. Mm -hmm. And doctors don't even know what it is. If they do know what it is, they don't test for it. They don't know how to test for it. They don't know that it's important. And the thing about it, and this is the kicker, insulin resistance shows up a decade before your doctor says, oh, Mrs. Jones, your cholesterol is kind of high. Oh, Mrs. Jones, your diabetic marker, that A1C, it's getting up there. We got to do something about that. Maybe metformin or glucose goes up. Mm -hmm. Those are late markers, Will. Yeah. Those show up years after this one starts to show up. Right. And that's why finding this now early, you're starting to look at this and there are ways to do, we talk about it in the book, there's four ways. And I can tell you one that's cheap, free, and you can do at home, but there's four ways to measure it. And once we start measuring that and seeing it, we can stop this train before it gets to heart disease. Yeah. One of the studies that we that we quoted in the book, I think they estimated, the algorithm estimated that you could prevent 42% of the heart attacks in the world if you wiped out insulin resistance. So that's how important this is. 
Today's program is brought to you by Athletic Greens, the most comprehensive daily nutritional beverage. With so many stressors in our modern life, it can be difficult to maintain effective nutritional habits and give our bodies the nutrients it needs to thrive. Our busy schedules, poor sleep, exercise, the environment, stress, or simply not eating enough of the right foods can leave us deficient in key nutrients. This is where Athletic Greens can help. It is a life-changing nutritional habit. Their daily all-in-one superfood powder is your nutritional essential. It is by far the easiest and most delicious nutritional habit that you can add to your daily routine today and empower towards better habits. They simplify the logistics of getting optimal nutrition on a daily basis by giving you just one thing with all the best things. I am consulting patients all day long, so I have to be on my game mentally. I have to feel great. I have to be sharp. And Athletic Greens is definitely a tool within my toolbox to do all of that. And Athletic Greens is definitely my tool for that because just one tasty scoop of Athletic Greens contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood blend, and more that all work together to fill the nutritional gaps in your diet, increasing your energy and focus, aiding with digestion, supporting gut health, supporting healthy immune system, all without the need to take multiple products or pills. And right now, Athletic Greens is offering my audience a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit my link today. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash Will Cole and join health experts like myself, athletes, and health-conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash Will Cole and get your free year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs today. This episode is brought to you by my friends at BetterHelp. So what interferes with your happiness? That's something that I talk to my patients a lot when they're struggling with with happiness. They're struggling with that zest for life and that joy, or they're going through a stressful time in their life. Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? I mean, I know when I'm stressed out, it can impact every level of my life. So being in charge of and having agency over your mental health impacts your physical health. And something that I say so many times to my patients is that mental health can't be separated from physical health. Mental health is physical health and dealing with one will impact the other. So it's two sides of the same coin. Our brain is part of our body and that's why I love my friends at BetterHelp. They will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect with a licensed professional therapist in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can start communicating with a licensed professional therapist in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. You can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room, 
BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it super easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients worldwide. So find the particular expertise you need online. Don't limit yourself to the counselors located in your city or your town. There are licensed professional counselors at BetterHelp who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping problems, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQ matters, grief, and self-esteem. Anything you share is confidential, it's super convenient, it's very professional, affordable, and also you have to check out the testimonials that they post daily on their site. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash A-B-W. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash A-B-W. Hey guys, I'm Maddie Orlando. And I'm Lauren Orlando. As you probably guessed, we're sisters. And we're also co-hosts of the podcast, The Sister Diary. Every week, we let our listeners into real-life conversations like the ones that we have at home. We have an eight-year age gap, so we always have a different perspective on things, but that makes it pretty fun. We talk about navigating life, growing up on social media, and pretty much anything else that we find interesting. You can catch a new episode of The Sister Diary every Friday. So many amazing truths there that I want to unpack, and you're probably shaking a lot of people's worlds as you're talking about all of this. So if we could go back to cholesterol and people know about that test, maybe they, they've had these cholesterol tests ran or that someone that they've loved, a parent, a grandparent, and they see that cholesterol above 200. And why yeah. is that? not something alone that should be looked at? Why is that and not the best test alone to determine if there's a problem or not? Because that test is the equivalent of a flip phone in the age of the iPhone 12 Pro Max or the Samsung Galaxy 8. It's the equivalent of a Commodore 64 computer. So let me give you a fast history of of the history of cholesterol testing. When I was a kid, before you were born, (laughs) you used to have health fairs. And they were things meant to like increase people's awareness of health parameters. People weren't that, you know, 50s and 60s, they weren't that into it. They had health food stores, that, you know, they were called health nuts. People who went yeah. into them, it was no whole foods. And you'd go to one of these health fairs and there'd be somebody, it'd be somebody in a lab coat doing a fingerprint and they would test your cholesterol. And they were beginning to educate people that this might be an important thing. They still believe that that's what caused heart disease. Okay, we'll let that go. Uh, and they would give you a single number. They would do a pin trick and they'd say, oh, Mrs. Jones, your cholesterol is 210, 240. Remember at one point back then, 240 was the normal number. They've right. done it. They've lowered it and lowered it and lowered it. And in the process added about 10 million patients for statins every time that they lower the, the ideal amount. But back then it was about 240. And they'd give you the single number. Mm-hmm. And everybody thought, oh, that's good or bad or whatever. And then around 1963, They developed the technology to actually see that cholesterol actually travels through the bloodstream in in kind of two different forms. Because 
here's a, a point that many people don't know. Cholesterol can't travel in the bloodstream. It's hydrophobic. It, it doesn't mix with water. It has to be in a container. And those containers are called lipoproteins. So think back. HDL is high-density lipoprotein. LDL is low-density lipoprotein. And the density only has to do with whether it floats or not. Mm -hmm. So a low-density anything is going to probably float to the surface. A high-density substance is going to float down to the bottom. So they had the high-density and the low-density. Mm -hmm. And let's remember this distinction because it is critical to the, what we talk about in the book and critical to understanding this whole thing. The lipoproteins are the boats. The cholesterol is the cargo. And it's not the only cargo in a lipoprotein. Lipoprotein also has some protein and some triglycerides. And there's, so the cholesterol is the cargo. The lipoprotein is the boat. Mm -hmm. And they figured out that there's actually two kinds of boats. And, one, and they do kind of different things. And in a very general and broad sense, the HDL ones do better things. And the LDL ones possibly don't. So they kind of decided to call it good and bad cholesterol. Mm -hmm. So that's 1963. We now have nuclear magnetic resonance to go inside the cell to look at the lipoprotein. We now know that there's 13 different kinds, not two, 13 different subdivisions of cholesterol. There's LDL3 and 3A and oxidized LDL and LP little a and HDL2 and HDL3A. I mean, there's 13 of them. And that's just the ones they've discovered so far. So and context matters. It, context matters and they don't all behave the same. Now we know that they're, they're not just LDL or LDL, they can be big or small. And mm -hmm. size actually makes a difference because if you have a big fluffy LDL particle, it's like a big tennis ball, it doesn't really do much damage. You get a little nasty LDL that's a small, like a little BB gun pellet, and that gets oxidized and atherogenic, that does some damage. Mm -hmm. We don't test that with the HD, with the good and bad. Good and bad cholesterol is like telling people whether you're short or tall. And as if that's a diagnosis. Right. So we are using a methodology that's 60 years old to measure a very complex thing that can actually give us some useful information. If mm -hmm. you knew the size of your, of your lipoproteins, you can make some guesses about whether you're insulin resistance. You can tell the pattern. And most important, probably the single most important data in a cholesterol test that the old, the old fashioned good and bad one doesn't tell you is how many boats are in the water. Now, let me explain that concept. If you are in charge of keeping a marina health, you're the, you're the cop that has to do the boat traffic. The thing that is most likely to predict an accident is how many boats you got in the water. The more boats there are, the more likelihood there's going to be an accident. Somebody's going to bump up against somebody else. Something's going to get caught where it doesn't belong. If you're managing a crowd, same thing. If you're a bar, if you're a, a bouncer to bar, the bigger the crowd in the bar, the more likely somebody's going to step on somebody else's foot, drop a drink. There's going to be a fight. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing with the lipoproteins. When you have millions of lipoproteins, guess what? One of them is likely to get stuck where it doesn't belong in the endothelial wall. And that starts the whole cascade of oxidation, inflammation, and plaque, and all the rest of it. So we need to be looking at the number of the boats in the water, not how many towels are in the bathroom of that boat. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. We're looking at the cargo is if that's going to tell us whether there's going to be an accident. What's going to tell you whether there's an accident is how many damn boats you got floating around out there. Yeah, and that's true. what the new tests do. So we don't say cholesterol is meaningless. We say measuring it the old way is meaningless. Mm -hmm. Let's look at how many, what the size of them are. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Let's look at the number of bolts, the number of lipoproteins. And that's what these new tests tell us, Will. And that mm-hmm. is useful information. I'm going to give you a perfect example, which is me. Okay. So I have had normal, healthy cholesterol tests measured the old way for most of my adult life. Any conventional doctor, anybody at a HMO, Kaiser, they'd look at my LDL number and, oh, man, <laughs> you'll live forever. When I learned about all this stuff, I had the real test done. And lo and behold, I'm very high risk. Mm. I have perfectly normal LDL, but when you look under the hood, my particle number is in a high risk category. A number of lipoproteins, number of boats, high risk. The pattern of those, whether they're big or small, mostly small, mostly atherogenic. These are very different numbers. So Mm -hmm. someone like me would actually be under-treated by the old bullshit tests. Mm -hmm. We always worry about the people who are being over-treated with statins because you're looking at an absolutely obsolete test. And in fact, most people go on statins just because their LDL is a little elevated. And if you look under the hood, you might find they're not in any danger at all. In my case, I was not being treated. Maybe I did need a statin, but you'd never know it because my LDL was perfect and my HDL was fine and you weren't looking at the right things. So looking at the right thing not only prevents overprescription, it also lets people like me be treated that would otherwise be ignored because we're passing, you know, the old fashioned test. Absolutely. Well said. So these are these tests and these, these are tests that I run for patients, nuclear magnetic resonance, a fantastic test. test. You're right. Absolutely. The NMR test really gives the context to it. So what you're saying, if I could just repeat, repeat back for people, Please. it's a simple total cholesterol lipid panel is an overly reductionist, simplified view of it without looking at the context of it. And there are many people, and I agree with you, so many people like yourself were, were back in the day when you ran this NMR test for the first time that have quote unquote normal cholesterol. The doctor says it's great, but you look at the subfractionation of these particles and these, these small dense LDL particles, these little BB bullets that can potentially tear through arterial walls and it, it could be problematic. So let's talk about what tests they should run. Obviously the NMR test. And for people that are listening right now, this is a conventional test. This isn't just some weird functional medicine test that we run. This is Quest. Lab core. Lab core. They yes. have these tests. I mean, thank so let's you talk for about, saying that. <laughs> but, I mean, because, they, you know, when, when we first wrote this book, they didn't. And it was, right. you had to, the NMR test, what's that? Lab core and Quest have these damn things. They call them different things the cardiac IQ, the lipo profile, whatever it is. They're looking at the total number of boats in the water. They're looking at the size of the particles. Right. That's what we need to be looking at, not this bullshit about good and bad cholesterol. Why do you think, I mean, we could talk about, let's talk about what labs people should have ran in addition to the NMR test. Sure. Sure. Why do you think, since we can get these labs through Quest and LabCorp, and we run them in functional medicine, but why aren't these typically ran in the conventional setting? What do you think the reason is? I think it's a combination of economics, sociology, psychology, doing things the way we've always done them, resistance mm-hmm. to change, uh, lack of knowledge, resistance in the pharmaceutical. And remember, there's a $31 billion industry devoted to lowering LDL cholesterol. And yeah. I'm too eager to like change the whole parameters yeah. and stuff. So makes sense. Uh, I, I think a lot of it is just a, an unwillingness to do things differently than we, you know, a lot of the, you get a lot of people, a lot of doctors who say, well, we've always done it this way and it's perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me answer one thing about that. 
Peter Atia, who's a really smart doctor, has a wonderful yes. podcast. A little conservative in some things, but he's, he's really brilliant. And he talks about a concept called discordance. So what is discordance? It's when two predictors predict in opposite directions. So let's say you're hiring a, a person to work at your company. And you want to kind of find some predictors. Are they going to work out or not? Mm-hmm. So you look at things. Well, they were at their last job for 13 years, and they had great references. Well, that predicts success. But they also had three DUIs and an arrest. Well, that doesn't predict a lot of success. So now you have two predictors going in different directions. When old-fashioned LDL and the particle test, the NMR test, when they predict in the same direction, no problem. Then your LDL test is a perfect surrogate. Mm-hmm. Discordance is when, like, you've got the DUIs, but you've got the wonderful work history. You've got two predictors going in a different direction. Now you've got a decision to make. Which one is likely to be accurate? We have the data on that. Whenever LDL and particle number don't agree, 100% of the time, particle number is right. I love that. So we have this, instead of looking at this oversimplified perspective of cholesterol, what you're saying is, and I completely agree with you on this, is that we have to look at the context of the particles that carry cholesterol because it's the damage of the boats and the amount of boats and the quality of those boats uh, less to do with the cargo inside the boats. Exactly. That's exactly it. What are some tests in addition to NMR tests that people are like, man, I want to know how's my insulin resistance? Because what you're saying is insulin resistance is what's driving the dysfunctional boats out there. What we said in the book, because I I don't like hyperbole where you say, this is the cause of everything. So what we say in the book is that insulin resistance doesn't account for every single case of heart disease, any more than smoking cigarettes accounts for every single case of lung cancer. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. There are people who get lung cancer who don't smoke, and there are people who smoke who don't get lung cancer. But insulin resistance tracks with heart disease as well as cigarettes track with lung disease. It tracks better than any other variable. It may not cause every case of heart disease. Nothing ever causes every case of anything. But man, is that a good predictor. If you want to hang your hat on something, I'd put it on that well before I'd put it on LDL cholesterol. Right. So what are some ways for us to gauge the insulin resistance and then uh, you keep you mentioned inflammation as well, which I, I talk a lot about, but I want you to give your brilliant perspective on this as well. Well, insulin resistance, we talked, there are four ways that you can that you can measure insulin resistance. And they range from a very sophisticated lab core test called the IR, the LPIR test, mm-hmm. IR sensor insulin resistance. They will actually give you a number on a zero to 100 mm-hmm. with norms, and you can see exactly how far or how close yeah. to sensitivity you are. That's, that's the state of the art way. There's also the equivalent of a BMI test that you can do online if you have two numbers, one of which is fasting glucose, which everybody has, because every blood test ever done in the history of the world has your fasting blood sugar. So everyone has that. If you can get your fasting insulin, you can plug those two numbers into an equation that's available everywhere online, just like the BMI. It's called the HOMA, H-O-M-A test. You just plug in, go to Google, ask for a HOMA test. You plug in those two numbers and it'll tell you insulin resistance. But here's the low tech way that I like to tell people on podcasts and lectures and Facebook lives. This is what you can do at home. And this is about 98% accurate and it costs nothing. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. You stand in front of a wall. You just stand facing the wall and you inch up walking closer and closer to the wall. If your belly touches the wall before your nose, 98% your insulin resistance. Mm. 
So that is a good way at home. Um, and then what are some, if they have a doctor, they want to ask their doctor for tests, what are some of the- Get a fasting insulin. Get a fasting insulin and then put it into that calculator online where all you got to do is mm-hmm. know your fasting blood sugar and your fasting insulin. It's an easy and inexpensive test. Yeah, I love that. So people, obviously, maybe they know some of their numbers are off here. Maybe we have a lot of health you know, of seekers out there that maybe have had an NMR test. What can they do- today, what can they start leaning into to start moving the NMR test to a positive direction, start getting more of this fluffy, buoyant, you mentioned like tennis balls or cotton balls that are protective. Uh, how just can, like how the can they change the pattern? Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because when I had a team of, I mean, as you can imagine, I'm access to a lot of really good doctors on this. Yeah. And I had several of them look at, at my uh, NMR test. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them said, look, we, we know how you feel about statins, but five milligrams of cholesterol knock these you know, right down. Mm-hmm. But I, I had a cardiologist that I really love from Scripps Institute named Douglas Treffen. And he is, he's the head of the lipid clinic at, at Scripps. He knows his stuff. And I had attended a lecture of his in which he talked about somebody coming in and not wanting to be on a statin. And he switched gears like that. And he said, no problem. Here's five supplements that you're going to have to take every day for the rest of your life. You willing to do it? Guy said, yes. He says, this will turn it around in a minute. So when I went to him, I said, I want you, your eyeballs on this test and I want some help. And I met him at, at, it was at a conference at Scripps. And we were on the lunch line when I approached him. I had just been to his lecture where half the cardiologists on the West Coast were sitting taking notes. <laughs> I figured, he, you know, and I said, look, this is my situation. Could you take a look at my stuff? And he said, yeah. He said, I hope you're eating plenty of fat. That's when I knew we were probably on the same page. <laughs> so, so this to be eating more fats. Yeah. So he, he was a big on a high fat diet, low carb, all of that stuff. And he actually prescribed a series of five or six natural nutri- nutritional supplements, one of which was red rice yeast, which is kind of like a statin, but yeah. not, you know, Aurora berry, uh, magnolia, citrus bergamot. And one or two other things. And, uh, and he told me to take these religiously, you know, for, and I did. And six months later, I was retested. Six or seven months later, <clears throat> I got retested. My pattern from the nasty little ones to mm-hmm. the big fluffy had mm-hmm. shifted enough to just barely get into pattern A, which is the one where you're mostly fluffy. It hadn't moved enough. I would like it to be even more, but it went from pattern B to just barely pattern A. And my particle number had been 2,200. It went down to 1,600. So it went from very high risk to moderate yellow line risk. And I'm not stopping. I I plan Mm -hmm. to lower it even more. So I know that these things can be shifted. You can shift your particle number and you can shift the size of them, the pattern of them. And that's all you want to do, really. We deserve to know what we're putting in our bodies and why, especially when it comes to something we take every day. Ritual's clean, vegan-friendly multivitamin is formulated with high-quality nutrients in bioavailable forms your body can actually use. What won't you find in Ritual? There won't be any sugars, GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, and artificial colorants. Plus, the fresh taste and delayed-release capsule design make taking your vitamins super simple. I'm consulting patients 11 hours a day online at my functional medicine telehealth center. And I know I have to make my nutrition a priority for my patients and for myself. I have to be on my game. I have to be really holding space for people that are going through very difficult things. And I know 
that our food isn't as nutrient dense as it once was. I know that the soil depletion and it can be a really great consideration for people to bring in a multivitamin into their day. And that's why I really love Ritual. It is a multivitamin reimagined. A multivitamin should contain key nutrients and forms your body can actually use to fill gaps in the diet. No shady extras. Ritual's delayed release capsule design delivers high quality nutrients, including vitamin D3, in just two daily pills. What I also love about Ritual is it's made traceable. You'll always know what nutrients you're taking and where they come from thanks to Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain. I also really love that Ritual is designed with your life stage in mind. Now available for women, men, and teens, Ritual multivitamins are scientifically developed to help support different life stages and it makes healthy habits super easy. Your multivitamins are delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. You can start, snooze, or cancel your subscription anytime. And if you don't love Ritual within your first month, they'll refund you your first order. So get key nutrients without the BS. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash Will Cole. That's R-I-T-U-A-L dot com slash Will Cole to start your ritual today. You all have probably heard me raving about Mellow. I take it every day at my Functional Medicine Telehealth Center. It is freaking amazing. My team loves it as well. What is Mellow, you ask? It is a powerful daily magnesium supplement that is supercharged with L-theanine, GABA, and over 70 trace minerals. It is basically brain food that your body will love. So good. And it's crafted from a proprietary blend of three of the most bioavailable, usable forms of magnesium, including the only type shown to cross the blood-brain barrier. Mellow provides essential daily support for our mind, our body, and our mood. It supports our mind because it boosts memory and brain function. It supports our body because it supports nerve and muscle health and restful sleep and regular bowel movements. And it also supports our mood because it promotes calmness and a healthy stress response. According to the World Health Organization, as much as 75% of the United States adult population does not meet its daily magnesium needs. And I can tell you, I'm looking at labs all day long. Most people are magnesium deficient, and this fixes it. Magnesium supports over 300 really important essential functions in the human body, regulating our mood, brain function, fatigue, nerve and muscle health, as well as our physical response to stress. Mellow is specifically formulated to replenish and optimize your body's magnesium levels at a cellular level simply and naturally. And my friends at Ned are offering us a really cool deal. You can get 15% off your first one-time purchase or 20% off your first subscription order when you use code WILLCOLE. Again, that's 15% off your first one-time purchase or 20% off your first subscription order by using the code WILLCOLE. Just go to helloned.com slash WILLCOLE. Again, that's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D, helloned.com slash WILLCOLE. 
You mentioned supplements, red yeast rice being one of them, mentioned some other ones too, bergamot. What are some other go-to supplements that you think if someone wants to either, if they have high small dense LDL particles or they have insulin resistance and they know that, what are some go-to supplements that people can consider? Well, with insulin resistance, the first thing to consider is a change in diet because you can turn that around in forty in, in 72 hours with a low-carb yeah. diet. I mean, you don't need supplements. I'm a big fan of supplements, and I think they're wonderful. And I'm a big fan of certain pharmaceutical drugs. I, for example, take metformin. I've taken it for years, not because of a blood sugar problem, because I think it has anti-aging side effects. And yeah. it's, being, it's being investigated by the National Institute of Health as yeah. an anti-aging drug. So I think, you know, that there are supplements and drugs that are great, but with insulin resistance, all you got to do is cut the carbs. I love it. And and you'll see a reversal in in like literally in three days. So um, I would go there first before I'd go to supplements with insulin resistance. I love that. So you cannot supplement your way out of a poor diet. You can't train your way out of it. That's an old trainer saying. When I was a trainer at Equinox, the first thing we learned is like, you can't out train a bad diet. Yeah. Can't outrun a bad diet, you know? <laughs> Got to so, kind of start with that. So you're an advocate of a, of a low-carb diet, which I was, let me just say this. I have, I've told you this before via email mainly, but oh, yeah. I was honored to write the beginning oh, of Living Low Carb. Thank you. It's such, such an amazing book. Um, now, so another much. pivotal book that you re-released. Can you talk about that book? And if people are, maybe they know a little bit about a low carb diet, but what does that look like? Yeah, day to day? Living, living Low Carb was my, my third book. And it was like in 2004, it's now, it just got its fourth edition. The one that you wrote the intro to was the fourth edition. So it's been out there a while. Uh, and it started out like in, when there were all these low carb diets, South Beach and Atkins and, pay, you know, there were a hundred variations. And mm-hmm. I literally reviewed 38 diets. I mean, I talked about the theory behind them. I talked about the research. I talked about what they were useful for. And then I literally did a review of 38 diets. And as the time went on, half those diets didn't exist anymore. So we did a revised edition, had 16. In the last version of living low carb, I, I eliminated that whole thing. And I just basically talked about categories of low carb diets because the little distinctions between South Beach and Whole30 and all these things, you get so caught in the minutia. Mm-hmm. And I, I basically talked about keto, paleo, and just, you know, general low carb kind of whole mm-hmm. food eating. And so it, it, it wasn't like... 38 different variations on a theme. I, right. I thought, you know, there's the carnivore diet. That's kind of a, a thing. Mm-hmm. There's the keto diet. There's all the variations of paleo. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of, you know, everything else is just a variation on a theme. Yeah. So I talked about those. I talked about some of the distinctions between keto, say, and paleo and cleared up a lot of myths. For example, a lot of people think that paleo is a high protein, high fat diet. It's actually, according to the research on paleolithic eating, which goes back to 1985 and continued for 25 years of follow-ups, the paleo diet was about 65% vegetation matter and 35% animal food. So it's definitely not mm-hmm. a keto diet. Um, yeah. But I, we talked about these things and I, I put a lot of the research in there and that for different conditions, polycystic ovary syndrome being one of them and, and high triglycerides and what happens. There's so much research on how you can mm-hmm. drop your triglycerides, low carb drives, drop them like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So I think it's a good introduction to, to some of the myths and misconceptions about low carb eating. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
it, that I've told you this offline many times. I think that you can get a lot of value out of what I call flirting with keto. I don't know mm -hmm. that everybody has to be on ketosis, in ketosis 24 hours a day. And, but I think that we do get a lot of benefits from cutting out processed mm -hmm. carbohydrates. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not a fanatic about following any one particular dietary prescription. I, I think that the less junk food we eat and the more real food we eat, the better it is and the rest of it is kind of details. Well said. And you covered Ketotarian in, in the new edition too. I did. I, I did. That. So I love that book. And let Thank me you. give you a fast reason why I love that book so much. It's not doctrinaire. That book is so balanced and, and fairly uh, argued and it doesn't, it doesn't uh, proselytize for like a, a, an orthodoxy. And it, it shows how you can kind of have a vegan sensibility, which is not my sensibility, but I understand it. And yet incorporate some medicinal foods from the animal kingdom. Um, so it's a, such a reasonable, well-argued book. I've just, it's one of my favorites. So thank thanks, you very man. much for writing it. And thanks for writing me. <laughs> I appreciate my pleasure. So what's a typical day you mentioned, you don't hold to one food dogma, which I love that. It's a, it's a, it's a grace. There's a lightness to it. There's an intuition to it. Uh, so what is a typical day look like for you food wise? I don't know that I have a typical one because I very much do the eating the equivalent of what we used to call in the gym fartlek training, which is basically you do it's 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 a kind of training where you you do what you feel like doing that day. You know, if you feel like <laughs> running wind sprints, you do that. If you feel like lifting weights, you do that. The only consistent thing I think is most of the time I eat about a half a pound of meat a day. So one one meal or another is going to be a half a pound burger, okay. grass fed. I do make juice almost every day. I make what I call plant juice, which is basically <laughs> anything that's at the grocery store. I have a red version and a green version, but other than that, you know, the green one has celery and apples and carrots and lemons and limes. And the red one has peppers and beets and things like that. But I, I do drink an awful lot of that juice because I'm not a huge vegetable eater and I don't make them a lot. Mm -hmm. So I realize that the juices don't have the fiber. I get that, but they sure do have a lot of nutrients. Yeah. Uh, and then during COVID particularly, during the, I kind of stocked up on the foods that I eat regularly and I, they, I didn't have any meal plan. I just basically lived on nuts and berries and cheese. And I, I'm very big on, on dairy for me. I am not, I understand it's a high allergen food for many people and many people don't do well with it. I'm not one of them. I eat raw milk, raw, unpasteurized, unhomogenized milk. We can still get it legally in California. I eat uh, raw kefir, full fat yogurt from grass-fed cows. So that those are big parts of it. And very big on berries and nuts. And, and during COVID, I think I had days in which I survived on just eating nuts. And my weight was the best it's ever been. My energy was fine. I drink olive oil out of the bottle. So I have a lot of weird kind of things that I do, <laughs> but I, I make sure those good fats are in there every day. And, and um, all, like I said, nuts, avocados, berries, Love that. some cheeses, and that's pretty much what I eat. Do you track macros at all? Or do you care where your fats or your carbs are at? What I did, and I think it's something everyone should do much like wearing a continuous glucose monitor, which I also have done. Mm -hmm. In 1989, I did that. I was just starting out, training at Equinox, into the bodybuilding world. I wanted to know everything. I tracked the grams of sugar in the toothpaste I used. Every day for a month, I tracked calories, macros, exercise. And I learned pretty much that at about 1,800 calories a day, I do great. 
And uh, if I eat more carbs than that, I don't do so great. And I kind of learned what I needed to learn so that I could eyeball things. And I've never done it since. The few times that I've kind of tested it over the years, it's the same data that was true in 1989. I still, do, I still do really good on about 1,800 calories, give or take. And I, yeah, most of those were from protein and fat with a fairly modest amount coming from carbohydrates. I love that. I love That's exactly how I explain it to patients because I don't track either, but I do feel like it's a good educational tool for somebody that has no idea how food is fueling them. They have no idea what proteins, fats, and carbohydrates these macronutrients look like within their foods. So do it for a week, do it for a couple of weeks, do it for a while. Some people thrive off of it. You know, the biohackers, they, they really, it. they love they it. They love it. They do it all the time. I mean, they keep diaries of it. They put it online. I get that. I, I yeah. respect it. It's just not, I'm not that obsessive yeah. to be able to do it consistently. <laughs> yeah. um, I will tell you this though, when we talked about insulin resistance, because we didn't really explain what it is. We just said it's yeah. this thing that you don't want to have. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think the way to explain insulin resistance, which, which dovetails right to our discussion right now, is that when you were a kid, you were assigned a bucket. This is how I think of it. If I had to explain insulin resistance to a fourth grader, this is what I say. When every kid, when they came off the assembly line, they got a bucket. And you can eat all the carbs you can put into that bucket every single day. As long as they fit in that bucket, you're going to be fine. Now, your bucket's not going to be the same as your neighbor's. Somebody else might get a big bucket. They can eat all kinds of pizza. It's not fair. Metabolism isn't fair. You got the bucket you got. Your bucket might be tiny. Somebody else's might be in between. If you try to force more carbohydrates into your diet than that bucket will be able to contain, you are eventually going to get something called insulin resistance, which is the inability of your body to handle that particular carb load for your body. It will never be the same for everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's why people get so screwed up. They go, well, they eat all that rice in China. Fine, that's their bucket. <laughs> and they don't eat the same rice you do, by the way. And there's a lot of other factors there. But the point is, I remember the very first seminar I ever did at Equinox Fitness Clubs. And I had a, a question, which has come up so many times since then that it's like, it's almost every year. Somebody stands up and goes, my husband and I are both on a diet. He can eat anything he wants and he doesn't gain weight. And I just look at Ben and Jerry's and I gain 10 pounds. Why? And I go back buckets. to the bu <laughs> bucket buckets. size, dude. I mean, the luck of the draw. I had a doctor friend once who measured his blood sugar, he and his wife, and he, he had that same feeling like, what is it? I'm going to just measure this. And he found out that like she could eat Haagen-Dazs, her blood sugar would barely move, and he could eat broccoli and his blood sugar would go up. People have idiosyncratic responses. Yeah. Blood sugar responses and, and a, a continual glucose monitor is a great way to prove that to yourself. I would eat something that looked like low glycemic index, shouldn't do it a problem. Zoom, it goes to the wall. You wouldn't even believe it. But when you see that, yeah. you change how you feel about these foods. It's not just like what the book said it should do. It's this is what it does to me. Yeah. And I can see it right there. Your own N of one experiment. Exactly. So something that popped in my mind as we were talking about this was the, what are your thoughts on the people, people with the APOE gene variants, like the three, four or four, four for people that they're basically slower metabolizers of saturated fats. Do you feel like that they should decrease saturated fats? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? And, and it's the APOE2 also, I think. Yes, right. Do, right? Um, and these are for people who don't, they're genes and, and they're different variations of genes, different alleles, they're basically mm -hmm. the same gene, but a molecule is in a different spot, something like that. Genetics can certainly play a part in how easily you metabolize certain food 
stuffs or food groups or macros. And that's the one you mentioned is a great example. These people don't do as well with saturated fat as other people do. And there may be many reasons why they may not have evolved to do that. You know, a different um, bucket size there. Different bucket sizes, yeah. different yeah. Uh, uh, cultural milieu. I mean, uh, um, uh, environment that they were raised in for, you know, eons. And we adapt to the food supply and the people mm-hmm. who adapt well do thrive in that environment and the people who don't adapt well die out. And so there, there are definitely genetic factors involved in this. Um, I am really just talking about general kind of like starting points. Yeah. They may not be the end up point for everybody, but it's, I think it's always a good thing to start with real yeah. food in its most unprocessed form possible. Mm-hmm. And then we can start to tweak, oh, you don't do well with fat, let's lower the fat. Oh, you don't do it with dairy, let's get the dairy out of there. But if we start with that whole real food principle, mm-hmm. we're not likely to do wrong. I, my original nutrition mentor, who was also a mentor for many of the people who, like JJ Virgin and, and people who are around today, used to, Robert Crayon used to say, Imagine that you're naked with a sharp spear on the African Serengeti. What could you eat? Because it's likely to be good for you. <laughs> now, you could catch it, if you could hunt it, if you could catch it, if you could fish it, if you could gather it off the ground or pluck it off a tree, probably likely to be good for you. And of course, mm-hmm. there's exceptions, there's poison mushrooms, but for the most part, what could you, I always say the Johnny Bowden four food groups, hunt, fish, gather, or pluck. If it fits into those, <laughs> it's a good starting spot. It's you know? a great starting spot. And on that point, what I tell patients is that they're still going to get, the point is to diversify your, your healthy fats. Like you said, you mentioned nuts and seeds. You mentioned drinking olive oil. All of these things, these monounsaturated fats and omega fats are things that if someone does have these genetic variants, doesn't mean you have no fats. It just means no. you go for these other healthy fats and decrease the saturated fats. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So. And, you- and, 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 and let me be very clear about, about one misconception that always kind of irks me, which is the division of good and bad fat. A lot of people think, oh, well, we know there's good fat and bad fat, but they think that good and bad is equivalent to animal versus vegetable. Right, right. That is not so, folks. <laughs> Yeah. Because vegetable oil, which is really seed oil, one of the most overly processed, highly denutrinized, mostly GMO seed oils, which are highly inflammatory to the system and contribute mightily to the imbalance between the anti-inflammatory omega-3s and the pro-inflammatory omega-6s. All this vegetable oil is one of the biggest culprits in the American diet for creating inflammation and oxidation and all the rest of the stuff. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a fan of vegetable oils. And I think there are many animal fats from healthy, humanely raised, grass-fed ruminants, for example, that are just as healthy as you can get. So I, I... And... There are fats from animals that are raised on horrible conditions on factories and fed the wrong diet and loaded with antibiotics. And those are terrible fats. It's mm-hmm. not a matter of whether it's animal or vegetable. It's a matter of whether it's toxic or not. Yeah. And toxicity goes into both categories. So we got to stop thinking of animal as bad and vegetable as good. Yeah. And people need to realize too, that when we and marketing and and being raised under this this world of telling us that this saturated fat is bad people equate animal meats with only saturated fats they have to which realize which is not which yeah, is not even you, because half the beef and half the fat in beef is like monounsaturated or 48% or something like that yeah. it's not all saturated fat i love that i love that we got to highlight that point do you intermittent fast at all 
big fan. I, I, I do, and I I started doing it almost by accident, and then realized, oh, that's why it's so good. <laughs> so I played. I other than this last ten days with COVID, I'm on the tennis court every morning at seven thirty for an hour and a half. I play every day, and I rarely ate before tennis. And I found myself playing perfectly well on an empty stomach. Maybe I have bulletproof coffee. Maybe I don't. Uh, and then I'd come home and I'd do stuff. And I noticed that I don't really start to eat between 11 or 12. And then I heard about intermittent fasting. I thought, what if I just put it off to one or two? So really, basically, I started doing it by accident, realizing this is not bad at all. Mm-hmm. And then when I started reading all the literature about the value of it, I just extended the window a little bit for another hour or two. And so I kind of do it almost every day. And it's not actually intermittent fasting. David Perlmuter had a wonderful article where he pointed out a lot of us confuse time-limited eating with mm-hmm. intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting is really you take a day or two days a week off from mm-hmm. eating, or you do that 500-calorie thing two days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, time-limited eating is more like you eat all your stuff between, say, noon and 8 o'clock, right. which is more like what I do. Yeah, time-restricted feeding. Yeah. And he, Perlmuter thinks that the benefits of time-restricted eating probably equal, if not surpass intermittent fasting. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I said, I, I, something I'm exploring in intuitive fasting, my third book. Um, it's true. The science is so compelling and you can compelling. take all the, all the stuff that we're talking about and put it in specific windows and really amplify the benefits here. Something that I really wanted to also talk to you about is the topic of sleep around health. People don't give it much attention. Can you talk no, a little bit about that? And I can't tell you how important that is. And as a matter of fact, in the great cholesterol myth, we one third of the book or almost one third of the book, the last part mm-hmm. is about all the things that have nothing to do with diet and exercise that impact heart disease. Mm. And sleep is way high on that list, but so is stress reduction. So is your relationship. I know you'll you'll sign on for this, your relationships with others, mm-hmm. your contribution to the community you live in, your affiliations with groups, like whether they're AA meetings or churches or, or animal shelters, all of those things have profound effects on your psychology and therefore on your hormones. There's even a entire science, which you know, and many people have not heard of called psychoneuroimmunology. It is how what you think about psycho affects your neurotransmitters, which in turn affects your immune system or your endocrine system. So this stuff's all related. So thinking that you can just like wipe out heart disease by even even measuring cholesterol the right way, you've got to look at these other things as well. Sleep's top on them. Now, uh, I did the low-carb cruise with Jimmy, uh, yeah. with our friend Jimmy Moore yeah. uh, a couple of years ago when I think the one before they stopped doing them because of COVID. Yeah. And they were all talking about this ring <laughs> called the Aura Ring. Right. I bought one. So the Aura Ring is, the, and I do have no financial interest in the Aura Ring, which I did. Uh, it's an expensive ring, but inside it has all these electrodes, which man, which actually monitor, I don't know if you can see that, but yeah, they, they're a little, yeah. So they monitor all these parameters from body temperature to the amount of time that you're in bed, to the amount of time you actually sleep, to latency, to REM sleep, to, opt, to deep sleep. And they measure all these things. And then when I started looking at that, it was a eye opener for me because I had trained myself to be perfectly happy with six hours sleep, go to bed at midnight, get up at six. I'm great. I wasn't great. It's, it's a very false sense of being okay mm-hmm. because my parameters on sleep were in the, they show you right there, red, 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 no REM sleep, no, op, no deep sleep, or just four minutes in deep sleep. 
I started making significant changes to my sleep, sleep hygiene, Mm -hmm. going to bed earlier, turning off the lights, changing the temperature, all of this stuff. And man, my sleep score started going from the 70s to the 80s. I got 91 this morning. And that really gives you a a feedback Mm -hmm. about how you are sleeping. And Mm -hmm. don't let anyone tell you it's all in your mind because that has some real serious measurable impacts. And talk about insulin resistance. You can create insulin resistance in three days of sleep deprivation. How about that? Three days of not sleeping enough, like a couple hours here and there, yeah. You're, and you show up as insulin resistance, and you can reverse it with 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 uh, fixing that sleep debt. So sleep is vitally important, vitally important for everything that we're talking about. So true. So you mentioned it uh, in passing here, but and we talked about it before we started recording. Is you uh, got COVID? So yeah, t- I did. T- t- tell, tell <laughs> I us don't about, recommend it. <laughs> don't recommend it either. Don't recommend it. Now, so tell us about that and 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 the connection between you know let's control the things we can control to mitigate risk factors as much as we can, and th- it's so tied into the things we're talking about today. Yeah, I where to begin with this? Uh, it drives me absolutely crazy that wonderful people like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Uh, Briggs and all of these health experts are not screaming at the American people to take 5,000 IUs of vitamin D every day. It drives me crazy that we have these natural treatments that reduce risk and strengthen the immune system and no one is talking about them. Why? They're afraid that it'll be toxic to take too much vitamin D. We're losing 240,000 people a day. They're worried about the toxicity of vitamin D, which doesn't exist. There's two ways to approach a pandemic or a hurricane. One is you get the hell out of the way or you figure out how not to spread the pandemic or to get out of the way of the hurricane. And that's a perfectly valid thing to do. The other way is you strengthen your damn house. And no one's talking about that. We talked for mask and distance and all these things are important. I do them all the time. But what about taking care of the the host, you know, Pasteur, Mm the great microbiologist. He studied germs all his life. On his deathbed, he was said to have said, look to the host. In other words, he finally figured out you could talk about the germs all you wanted to, but if you didn't strengthen the host, it wouldn't make any difference. So to me, all of this these people were stocking up on vitamin C and they're watching CNN 24 a day. They're reading a Facebook feeds. And I said to them, you know, you can eat all the vitamin C you want in the world. It's all being eaten up by the stress you're causing by watching Facebook 24 (laughs) seven. So to me, it's a two pronged approach. Mm -hmm. I've been doing this since I was 38. It's not new to me to strengthen your immune system. Uh, I take quercetin every day. I took it way before COVID and before they realized it was an effective therapeutic. I take 5,000 of D. I doubled it when I got COVID to 10,000 a day a lot. I get it, but you know, that's what I did. Quercetin, vitamin C, three, 4,000 a day, zinc every day, selenium every day. These are the basics. And mm-hmm. I believe very strongly that because I've done that for so many years, I had a mild, you know, I was able to fight this off. Now, I I don't know that that's true for everybody, but I believe very strongly that Mm -hmm. there's two parts of this equation. One is not spreading it and not getting it. And the other is, if you do get it, you don't want to die from it. And I think we can take a lot of very important steps to ensure we're in the 98.5% of people who don't die from it. Mm -hmm. But not if we're all metabolically broken, which takes us back to insulin resistance. 
Nina Teichlo told me the other night on a panel discussion that the latest studies show that 88% of Americans have some degree of insulin resistance. The studies that we quote in the in the book that looked at it globally say it's 52%, but I think that's an under, I think it's more like 70 to 80%. Mm-hmm. So if everybody's metabolically broken, you got to assume, and those and those diseases are the the pre-existing conditions that make COVID outcomes really bad, you got to assume that if we could turn that around and we could get more metabolically healthy, I'm not saying people wouldn't die of this horrible disease. I'm not saying there'd be no fatalities. I don't think it'd be as high as it is Mm -hmm. because I think we're dealing with a metabolically sick population who is more likely to have, not have the resources to fight off these things. And believe me, this COVID is going to be ancient history next year. There'll be another variation that's even worse. So we better start working on what we can do to fortify our own immune systems, not just how do we keep it from spreading, but how do we keep it from damaging? Because that's mm-hmm. where the action is. Mm. True. That is good. Golden, golden truth. So I call the show The Art of Being Well. This is something that you've lived and is the deepest part of your core for a, a long time, a large part of your life. So what is something that we haven't covered yet um, that you wish you knew 20, 30 years ago about the art of being well? How important the stuff that doesn't have to do with diet and exercise is. I mean, it's really hard to state because I'm a nutritionist, you're a doctor. We, we, I mean, we talk about these specific little areas that we have control over, like what we eat and how we exercise. But you know, I don't know anyone who started out when I did doing weight loss coaching, helping people lose weight, who is still interested in that. I don't know a single nutritionist or or practitioner who's still doing food diaries because we've all figured out that it's not just about that. We've mm-hmm. all figured out that it's the stress you live with, the relationships that you form, how you sleep, how you digest, how you contribute to other people. All of those things just magically go together into this chemical soup that make you live well. And when we get so focused on a lab test like cholesterol, or even the ones, even when they're done right, mm-hmm. we, we kind of miss that whole context. I look at health, the art of living well as a bank. So you have a health bank and you get to make deposits and withdrawals. And no one, just like in regular life, no one deposit or one withdrawal is going to bankrupt you or make you rich. Mm-hmm. They're all cumulative. Mm-hmm. So maybe you have an all-nighter and you drink a lot of alcohol and you have a really shitty night. Now, that's a big withdrawal. But maybe you also take vitamin D every day. That's a deposit. And maybe you also eat well. That's a deposit. And you did some charity event. That's a deposit. And they, we don't know what they are worth, but the idea is to have a positive balance. It's not to have no withdrawals. It's mm-hmm. to be putting more stuff into the health bank than you're taking out of it. I think that that's kind of the key. You don't beat yourself up if you made a withdrawal. We all do it. But what you try to do is balance it with all these little habits. And there's small things. Eat two Brazil nuts a day. There's your selenium. Then you should get a couple of credits in the bank account for that. (laughs) And it's those kind of things that I think ultimately uh, kind of either make you rich or make you poor. How many deposits are you making? How many withdrawals? We try to make less withdrawals and more deposits, just like we do with our real bank accounts. And that's what we got to do with our health. Johnny, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh man, thank you for having me. I love you. Thank you. Love you you too. Great appreciation. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about Johnny's work, check it all out at johnnybowden.com. That's J-O-N-N-Y-B-O-W-D-E-N. 
At the end of every episode, I'll be answering a question from one of you guys. Nothing is off limits. Ask me anything. And you can send your questions over to me on Instagram or Facebook. As a functional medicine practitioner, it's been fun seeing the questions that have already come in on different food philosophies, wellness trends, and ways to approach overall mental, emotional, and physical health and well-being. Thanks for those. And I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. All right, now it's time for another Ask Me Anything. Today's question is from Alice. Alice asks, hi, Dr. Cole. I know you talk a lot about inflammation, but I'm still a little unclear about what exactly inflammation is and what labs should you run to see where your inflammation levels are? Thanks. Great question, Alice. Well, let's talk about it. Inflammation, it is a nebulous term. You're right. It's a little bit ambiguous sometimes, and it's thrown around a lot in the health and wellness world. It is a product of our immune system. It's not inherently bad. We need it to fight off viruses and bacteria. It's a wonderful thing. And the human race would not be here without healthy, measured, balanced inflammation responses in the body. So we need healthy, balanced inflammatory responses in the body. The problem is when that inflammatory response is thrown out of balance. It's subject to the Goldilocks principle, right? Not too high, not too low, but just right at the right time. So that's just like anything else in the body. Our gut microbiome, we want balance. Our hormones, we want balance. We don't want too much of those things. We don't want too little of those things either. And most people around the world today have inflammation too high for too long. It's sort of that forest fire that's burning in perpetuity. That is chronic inflammation, which has broken the governing law of the Goldilocks principle or homeostasis in the human body. So chronic inflammation is associated with just about every health problem under the sun. I mean, autoimmune conditions, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes, heart disease, all the things we talked about with Johnny in today's episode, and even brain health issues like anxiety and depression and fatigue oftentimes will have inflammatory components to them. And there's tons of research exploring that. Uh, So we have to understand inflammation's implication in just about every chronic health problem that we face as a society today. So some of the labs that I run for patients around the world, again, that we either coordinate with local labs, whether it's a blood test or some other uh, lab that we ship out from the Functional Medicine Telehealth Center to get a baseline on inflammation. So one of those is high sensitivity C-reactive protein. It's an inflammatory marker, the American Heart Association, the CDC, uh, and us in functional medicine, we want the optimal range for HSCRP to be under one. Above that has been shown it's an increased risk for many problems. I mean, typically it's ran conventionally to look at cardiovascular events like heart attack and stroke, uh, but it's way more than that. So look at HSCRP because it's associated with tons of different things because it's a surrogate lab for many different types of interleukins or inflammatory proteins. Homocysteine is another one. We want homocysteine to be under seven in functional medicine. Above seven has been associated with different health problems. It can act as a neurotoxin, increasing blood-brain barrier permeability, or actually contributing to neuroinflammation, which is associated with other neurological or brain health issues that I mentioned earlier. Uh, Dr. Brednison at UCLA is doing research at looking at its its, uh, connection and correlation with um, neurodegenerative issues like Alzheimer's. Higher homocysteine levels isn't good from a neurological standpoint, and it's not good from a cardiovascular heart health standpoint either. Uh, It's associated with increased risk for heart attacks and strokes as well uh, and other clotting problems. The next biomarker that I run 
for my patients is ferritin, which is a biomarker for stored iron. So I definitely don't want to make sure, I want to make sure the ferritin is not too low, but uh, spiked ferritin, if it's higher levels of ferritin is associated as an acute phase reactant. So basically in states of inflammation, and I see this a lot of times with people with metabolic issues and insulin resistance, you'll see spiked ferritin where on the surface people will, maybe a doctor will just run these basic markers and they'll say, well, you have high ferritin and they'll say it's high iron and they'll be labeled as hemochromatosis or iron overload, but you have to put that in context with the rest of the iron labs. So if you have normal iron, normal iron saturation, uh, and normal total iron binding capacity or TIBC, but high ferritin, you have to put that in context with the totality of what's going on in that person's health. If they have insulin resistance and other inflammatory markers, that ferritin's probably acting as an inflammatory marker. So context matters with all of these labs. You can't just look off of one number on a piece of lab, on a lab, and say that's the full uh, context or breadth of that person's physiology. But ferritin is one thing to keep in mind. It can act as an inflammatory marker. Uh, we also want to look at the gut as far as it's being home to 75 to 80% of the immune system. So there's a lot of gut-centric components to people's inflammation of looking at intestinal permeability or leaky gut syndrome, measuring zonulin, which is the protein that governs gut lining permeability. And then we look at different autoimmune markers in functional medicine as well. And then that larger autoimmune inflammation spectrum, if there's an, a specific autoimmune component to certain people's inflammatory problems. And then we can get a little bit more granular in functional medicine with these expanded uh, microbiome tests and toxicity labs that can drive inflammation levels. And then these other more, uh, you know, they're still conventional labs, but they are uh, beyond the basic inflammatory markers like C3A, C4A, something called TGF-beta-1. These are other very important immune markers for people that are dealing with other types of chronic inflammatory things like mold toxicity and chronic Lyme disease and other biotoxin type issues. So I just basically named like the most basic labs to the most granular, specific advanced functional medicine stuff to put these health cases into perspective. So I know that's a lot to uh, think about, but those are the, some of the things that I look at when it comes to inflammation. Thanks again for listening to The Art of Being Well. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, hit follow and pass it along to a friend. To see more, head to drwillcole.com slash podcast. I'll be back again next Thursday, and I hope you will too. Talk soon.